Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. The Overture to the Marriage of Figaro. Good evening and Happy New Year. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. It's our final show of 2023 and we have a special treat in store for you tonight. We're looking at the life and music of perhaps the greatest composer of all time, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and we'll be debating his remarkable legacy. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week for our Christmas special, we toured the White House and discovered how Christmas has been celebrated down through the years and how various different traditions have evolved. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's show is on the greatest musical virtuoso the world has ever known. Only 35 when he died in 1791, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was a musical genius who composed operas, symphonies and many other works in a short but brilliant career. And in tonight's show, we want to explore his life, his music and his legacy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Wolfgang Marx is Associate Professor of Historical Musicology at UCD and is an expert on the representation of death in music with a special focus on requiem compositions. Dr. Angharad Davis is a Sessional Academic at the University of Sydney and the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and the University of New South Wales. Professor Harry White is Professor of Music at UCD and is an expert on music and cultural history in Ireland and on music in early 18th century Vienna. Well, you're all very welcome. But Wolfgang, I might begin with you, given that you share the same first name as our as our subject tonight. And is it possible to separate the man from the mythology? Because Mozart is, there's so many legends about him. There's so many different uh, myths about him. And apart from, you know, we have the wonderful music, but the life is still shrouded in legend. 
It is and it isn't. In a way, we know quite a bit. We have uh, letters, we have sources uh, by not the Munster man himself, but the people who knew him, who were friends. And that's, for instance, the Irish tenor Michael Kelly, who was uh, singing in the premiere of uh, The Marriage of Figaro, and who left us his memoirs and tells quite a bit about what he experienced with Mozart. But the mythology, like, for instance, what we see in the movie Amadeus, that probably most of our listeners have seen, is uh, something that cannot be suppressed, even if we know and can demonstrate how things are wrong. Salieri did not uh, actually try to kill Mozart, and we know who actually commissioned the Requiem. It wasn't Salieri or anybody else. It was a minor nobleman, Count von Walsech Stuppach, who wanted to use this as something he pretended he had written himself for his wife, who had died a bit earlier, and did so afterwards. But the interesting thing is you can tell that many, many times to people, but you cannot kill off the myth. And the myth has been around since the 1820s or so, since essentially Salieri died. That happens a lot, actually, that uh, the moment the last people who can refute something are no longer there. All these conspiracy theories, uh, all of these mythologies come up about someone who wanted someone killed, who wanted someone uh, uh, something bad or pretended that I wrote this. There seems to be a need uh, to, to believe in, for instance, a heroic figure, a genius who had to overcome uh, all these adversities. And so we need to have these adversities determined, even if we are not sure that they actually happened. Or sometimes we are sure that they didn't happen that way. But it's just there. And there have been Pushkin wrote a novella and uh, Rizka Korsakov wrote an opera and lots of other minor German writers wrote other texts. Then we have the play by Schaeffer and then we get the Foreman movie. And it goes on and on and on. There has been crime fiction, historical crime fiction about Vienna in the 1790s and who killed Mozart. This is just uh, going on and on and on. And, uh, and, and researching it, yeah, I did come across some of those, the ideas of it was Mozart murdered and what was involved. But, but in terms of the legend, it's even bigger than that because it's the, the sheer productivity of, of the man. You know, Beethoven, nine symphonies, Mahler, nine symphonies, Bruckner, nine symphonies, Mozart, four symphonies, you know, there's all those operas, there's, you know, the chamber music, there's the masses, there's it's just such an extraordinary the piano pieces, it's such an extraordinary output and given that he died at the age of 35 when, you know, such a young age, to have produced such an incredible amount of music and for so much of it to be breathtaking and considered some of the most beautiful pieces of all time it, that's really extraordinary as well. Yes, it is. And he produced an extraordinary amount of extraordinary high-quality work in a very short period of time. But again, prior to 1800, it wasn't quite that unusual. Haydn produced 104 symphonies. Now, granted, he lived twice as long, but still, uh, it is quite something, uh, even more than 104, if you count a few that are not officially counted. But um, this was common, and it was at Beethoven's time, which was just a few years later, that they started focusing very much on individual works, worked them out in much more detail. And Beethoven actually also made a point of letting us know about it. That helps creating the myth one way or the other. For Beethoven, we have lots and lots of sketches. We know how he struggled for years to write a piece, first idea, revision, revision again, and then critique and revision again. Mozart, there's almost no sketches. So people think, oh, he was brilliant. It just was a spark of genius that flowed through him and he just wrote it down uh, like the John Giovanni Overture the night before the premiere. Maybe he did, but actually what he did, he, he didn't 
make sure that the sketches were preserved. In some cases, we have sketches. But in many other cases, it's suspected that his widow, Constanza, actually made sure that they didn't survive. So that this, Rossini is a similar case, that this idea that these people just could write it down, it was complete in his head. Yeah, he was very good. But he probably also benefits from the way in which we look at him today and our own expectations of what we want to see in such a person. And Wolfgang, why do we love his work so much? Why why did he, well, how did he come to be recognised as the perhaps greatest composer of all time and this this great musical genius? Is there, it's, it's hard to kind of maybe... To get it, you know, with Beethoven, there's the drama, there's the drama, and there's the tension, and it's these, you know, epic kind of battles between, you know, light and dark, and it's and there's conflict there and everything. But there's not really that with Mozart. But it's it's beautiful. There's an elegance. There's a subtlety, and but it's hard to really maybe put into words what makes the pieces so so significant. There is drama in Mozart too, but yes, there's also the elegance. So if you take the magic flute, for instance, there is a strong battle between the dark and the light. It's actually called, it's almost like uh, um, like like Star Wars or something like that, uh, where there is a musical style that is associated with the Enlightenment and reason and Sarastro, and there is then the style associated with the Queen of the Night, who is evil, who is emotional, who is unenlightened. And, uh, and who gets the best song. And who gets the best song, of course, that everybody knows, but... But uh, there is a very conscious way of arranging the musical style that suits those characters. Now, Mozart didn't invent those, but he used them in a very characteristic and meaningful way. And yes, he it is very good. It is fun to listen. If it's bad or good, if it is very virtuosic, it's very impressive, it is very melodious, and it is not as deep a drama as you get in the Romantic period, where this is this becomes the main topic. But there is drama there. There's a lot of drama there, and it is also very subtle in the way it evolves. Harry, I wonder if we were able to go back in time to 1791 and the death of Mozart, would we be seeing a huge outpouring of grief at the death of one of the greatest composers of all time? Was he being... Were were they mourning the death of someone who had been this childhood virtuoso? I, I wonder, like, what was his standing in his own lifetime? Well, his standing was very high, but he, he wasn't... Uh... He wasn't mourned as Beethoven was, you know, 35 years later or whatever it was, in 1827. Um, And to some extent, uh, Mozart's, to put it mildly, his mismanagement of his own affairs really was what resulted in a decline in his popularity and also just the the incessant appetite for novelty in, uh, in a city like Vienna. But I think the main thing is that the awareness, as Wolfgang was already intimating, the awareness of Mozart really grew alongside the myths that developed about his life uh, at the turn of the century and then into the 19th century. And in fact, Costanza, his wife, had a great deal to do with initiating uh, sort of Mozart myths about his his sudden and inexplicable genius and the sinister or at least frightening aspects surrounding his death. And the the fact that, you know, one, one of the favorite Mozart stories is that Mozart became convinced he was writing his own requiem. And that kind of preoccupation is so quintessentially romantic that it's very difficult to sort of peel back the layers and say, well, yes, he was a very highly respected composer, particularly among cognoscenti, people who knew good music when they heard it. Uh, you know, a few years before he died, Joseph Haydn said to... Uh, 
his father before God and as an honest man, your son is the greatest composer known to me, either personally or by reputation. So his his standing among, as it were, expertise was very high. Um, and his standing with the general public um, had faded a little bit. I mean, he ran into difficulties as a composer of opera, ran afoul of certain people at the court opera, and you can see a strange trajectory, you know, from from the from Marge Figaro, which incidentally wasn't very well received when it was first heard. But he works his way rapidly through so many things, and you cannot but help feeling that he's looking for a way to express himself operatically. So by the time you get to the Magic Flute, it's a it's a kind of downscale uh, uh, entertainment by comparison with the extravagances of the court opera he would have been used to, and and it's a. It's not, strictly speaking, an opera to begin with. It has spoken dialogue and so on. And Harry, how do you explain the, the productivity? How do you explain the fact that there are so many brilliant works and, and such a run of, of works in the 1780s up to his death in 1791 with the, the major operas at the end and um, the symphonies, the later symphonies? And, you know, is there a sense of this is someone who you know, maybe on some level thought time was running out and was making as much beautiful music as possible or that this was just a, a, a glorious phase of, of, of creativity? Well, I think as often as the case, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. I mean, the thing is that a lot of the biographical myths surrounding uh, Mozart have been debunked, but nobody can quite explain or account for the consummate intelligence and enduring interest of the music he wrote. And from a very early age, and certainly from his mid-twenties onwards, for the last 10 years of his life, the music is not only astonishingly uh, well-found and consummate, but also almost impossible to emulate. You know, there's a sense in which Mozart changes the history of opera, has a huge impact on, on the way the symphony behaves, completely and utterly, almost single-handedly, brings the keyboard concerto to its first great maturity and does these things in rapid succession. There isn't the kind of gestation period that you would imagine or that you would imagine necessary for that. So in that sense, that Mozart myth is much more difficult to probe because there isn't a satisfactory way of answering it or explaining it. And again, as, as Wolfgang was saying, you know, that we don't really have you know, reams and reams of sketches as we do with Beethoven. You can see the struggle of Beethoven's musical imagination on the page in front of you. Whereas with Mozart, he's like a chess grandmaster. He just knows where the moves are. And the moment he steps to the table, he plays. And do you think composition was difficult for him? Or, you know, in this period of creativity, you know, he just found the ideas, the sounds, the music was coming to him. And uh, like, or was it a struggle that he had to sit down and think, OK, how am I going to put this on the, on the score? I think it's unlikely that it was difficult for him. To judge by what we know of his prowess, not only as a performer, but as a composer and his ability to execute difficult technical feats with, you know, unnerving rapidity, I don't think it was difficult for him. I think he's, his point of departure was everybody else's point of arrival, you know. He, 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 that's why he was able to affect so many changes in the opera house and, and uh on, on the concert platform because you know if you think of Mozart he was the soloist in most not all but most of his mature piano uh, concertos and he wrote those at great at great speed and in fact you know usually the cadenzas the big soloistic moment of virtuoso in the first of virtuosity rather in the first movement those were improvised by him and once or twice he wrote them out but most of the time 
he he left it to the to the inspiration of the moment. So to some extent, even though we have to be careful of saying, you know, it was all in his head and he just had to pop it down onto paper, he was certainly closer to that position than mere mortals might like to admit. Angharad, it's fascinating that the legend pretty much begins when he's only a, a small child because there's first of all the legend of him as the great virtuoso musician and that's something that his, his father takes advantage of and, and, and exploits as much as he can. And so from an early age, he is known as a musician. He was, he was. And he was um, had the great advantage in some ways of being a prodigal young musician in an era that was fascinated with prodigies. Um, there were a number of, you know, prodigies of language and child prodigies of music and even prodigies of theology um, who were uh, a source of fascination for the thinking people of his day. And so um, one might say that there was an audience that was ripe and ready to appreciate um, and to certainly speak very glowingly of and perhaps occasionally even very slightly exaggerate um, his skills as a very, very young child. And how significant a figure was Leopold in his development? Because was that a a beneficial relationship or was there an element that Leopold was exploiting the talent uh, for, for money as well? I mean, it's, it's again, uh, as, as Harry was saying, it's very much kind of a little bit of both um, because on the one hand, uh, Leopold was obviously Mozart's first music teacher and, in fact, had the overseeing of all of young Mozart's education in, in many different branches. Um, and without that very solid start to life, um, it's hard to say if he would have developed the kind of very natural, very fluid, very uh, prodigal talents that he had. Um, But at the same time, um, Leopold also was uh, very interested in uh, the betterment of himself, but also the betterment of his family and showing Mozart off to make as much money as possible and to potentially even um, get Leopold's uh, better position than the one he had in Salzburg was very much um, high on the list of priorities. And tell us about his older sister, Maria Anna, because she was also a very talented uh, musician. She was very creative and the two of them uh, performed throughout Europe together. They did. They did. Um, and there were, it's interesting that we have um, so many sources that describe what happened when the young Mozarts came to town um, because they were touring when uh, young Wolfgang was only about seven and Nanerl was only about ten. Um, and so they're going around to, you know, the, the crowned heads of Europe, but also in the respectable pubs of Europe um, for the aristocracy, for the hoi polloi, and wowing all these people with their prowess. And there are some reports that um, that Nanerl was, in fact, um, a, more, uh, a more stylish performer than Mozart. People were amazed by young Wolfgang's um, prodigal feats of technique and his exhibitionism and his amazing capacities as an improviser and his, you know, his perfect pitch and other, you know, party talents like that. Um, but there was a sense that Nanerl had a more graceful approach. Um, and that may reflect, those descriptions may reflect certain gendered expectations about what was proper to a female musician versus a male musician. Um, but they also, to an extent, um, are borne out by the way that Leopold talked to Wolfgang when he was developing his career. And he was always encouraging his son 
to be lighter and more graceful and more elegant and not to try to strain so hard after complexity um, and innovation. Um, so there were some there were some who said that Nanerl was certainly had the capacity to be a superior musician according to the tastes of the day. But of course, as a young woman from a respectable family, um, by the time she was 16, it was time for her to cease performing in public and make a respectable marriage. And that was the end of that. So if she had been born a, a boy, it could have been a very different career for her. It could have been. But of course, it's very hard to know because um, so much of what we we have learned about the young Mozarts um, is written by people who are writing letters to try and impress their friends with their understanding or with their um, their access to um, a, a very recherche uh, kind of social and musical event. And so um, it can be challenging to say what are they communicating accurately and what are they saying mainly through the lens of what they want other people to, to know or what they want other people to think. Mozart started composing then at a very early age. I think his first symphony was transcribed by his father at the age of eight and he was composing works from an even an earlier age than that. How good were these works or is it just hugely impressive that you have a child that young uh, composing like this? I mean, I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but to a large extent, it's the latter. Certainly his, his very early compositions, you know, the pieces that Leopold was notating, transcribing down for him at the ages of four or five or six or seven, they don't show what, you know, you might necessarily expect to be, um, you know, the, the signs of great genius to come. They're very competently written, but they are very much juvenile works. He wasn't writing, you know, mature, sophisticated compositions um, before the age of 10 or even before the age of 20. Um, But combined with his capacities as as a performer and, of course, combined with what we know that he went on to do later, um, there is a, a, a desire, I think, for people to look at those very early works. And rather than seeing them as the product of an accomplished child who is playing at composing to try and see in them the seeds of what was to come later. Well, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll find out how exactly those seeds burst to life. We'll find out about Mozart, the innovator, and Mozart, the musical genius, right after this. Well, welcome back. We're talking history. And tonight on New Year's Eve, we are talking about the life, work and legacy of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We have an expert panel tonight, Professor Wolfgang Marx of UCD, Dr. Anghara Davis of the University of Sydney and the University of New South Wales, as well as the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, and Professor Harry White, also of UCD. Harry, can I ask you that question about Mozart as an innovator? You know, this was the era of Haydn and all of the great works that he was he was creating. Was Mozart seen as radically different? Was Mozart seen as an innovator? Yes, he certainly was. And and even within his own short lifespan, people were very aware of the innovatory aspects of his work, particularly in, th- in the theatre, but also on the, cl- on the concert platform. I mean, if you look at the, the span and the um, really the content and discourse of, of Mozart's operas, he begins very much in the manner of uh, a composer of serious opera, rather stodgy and well-worn model, uh, and transforms that when he encounters Lorenzo da Ponte and begins to set uh, uh, adaptations of these uh, plays by Beaumarchais. And in fact, 
it's through the agency of these libretti that Mozart, as it were, emancipates opera from its older reliances on uh, solo virtuoso uh, settings and, and perhaps principally brings forward the idea of the vocal ensemble. I mean, Mozart is building enormous finales into Figaro and Cosi and um, really even at the end of uh, the astonishing way in which Don Giovanni ends in a way that is, is really unprecedented. You, you, he is the first composer to engage with um, something that only music can do really, which is to allow several people to speak to an audience at once through the medium of, of a musical ensemble. I mean, if you tried that in the spoken theatre, the result would be chaotic. Now, it's not to say that there were no ensembles in earlier operas, but, I mean, if you go back even 20, 30 years before Mozart, ensembles tend to be pretty routine. They tend to be just a wrap-up chorus or whatever at the end of a long scene. But in Mozart's case, particularly in The Marge of Figaro, but also in in, uh, Don Giovanni, uh, what what happens is that the ensemble becomes a dramatic agent and Mozart starts to write longer and longer ensembles that bring the drama that's inherent and sometimes the comedy that's inherent in the in the libretto to an almost unbearable degree of, uh, of excitement and interest. And what's the relationship between Mozart as the composer and then someone like Lorenzo Dupont who, who wrote many of the librettos, the text, for example, for Don Giovanni or The Marriage of Figaro? Given that you've been provided with a text and you're putting the music to it, what does that mean in terms of the creative process? Well, first of all, there's some evidence, perhaps unusually but unmistakably, that uh, Da Ponte and Mozart collaborated to a degree, that Mozart specified uh, certain things that he wanted and needed. Now, it is true that in some cases, you know, in the very last year of his life, for instance, Mozart wrote The Magic Flute, which was, you know, uh, an unprecedented work entirely, not not generically speaking, but just the kind of piece that it was and the and the the dramatic shape that it had. But he also uh, set La Clemenza di Tito, which was just one of these old operas that had been lying around in, in the palace archives since the, since the 1730s. In fact, it originally had been set by a composer called Antonio Caldara in the, in the 1730s. Nobody wanted a set in Vienna. Nobody. And Mozart took it on. And opinions vary as to um, the quality of Tito. And it's, it's a very rigid libretto. But one thing is for sure that even if you were the most ardent Mozart operatic fan in the world, it would be very hard to prefer La Clemenza di Tito over the vivacity and the ebullience and the life and the modernity of pieces like Don Giovanni and uh, indeed um, Emmanuel Schikaneder's text for uh, the magic flute. And so, I mean, we have some evidence to show, in fact, that Mozart did have a hand in these libretti. He wasn't writing them himself, but he was certainly shaping them to some some degree. Uh, and I think that that, that kind of collaborative uh, engagement between librettist and composer um, shows it isn't simply just, here's, a, here's a, a dramatic poem and you've been commissioned to set it, off you go. There is, there is some sense of meeting of minds between 
between Mozart and his mature uh, librettists, namely Da Ponte and, and Chicaneda. And it also has an impact, the fact that some of the works are given these names, like the 41st Symphony is, is called Jupiter and some of the earlier symphonies have names like Paris and Prague and so on. But And that gives them a kind of a, you know, we read into things there. But of course, Mozart wasn't giving them these titles. These were these were added later and yeah. uh, and... You know, so in a way, uh, people are kind of writing or adding on a kind of an extra layer of meaning to the works. Well, that's true. But it's, I mean, sometimes they're just uh, routine ascriptions. So, you know, the Prague Symphony was first given in Prague and that kind of thing. Don Giovanni was first given in Prague as well, as it turns out. But um, I think sometimes names like the Jupiter Symphony and so on uh, reflect people's you know, response to the music. And this is the thing I constantly come back to with regard to Mozart, that the the sort of uncertain drama of his life is one thing, but we wouldn't be talking about it were it not for the extraordinary drama of the music. And um, I think if you, for instance, his keyboard concertos, his piano concertos, as we would describe them now, um, they tend not to have names, but they are no less dramatic, no less astonishing in the way that they uh, bring to a kind of consummation um, a generic model that before Mozart was 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 routine at most. I mean, Mozart makes the piano concerto one of the most interesting musical domains of the entire 18th century. And in fact, um, it's uh, when you're looking for Mozart's influence in the 19th century, the piano concerto becomes incredibly important. Like something like the 20th, uh, completely haunting and beautiful. Well, well exactly. The D minor, uh, in fact, there are really only two um, minor key uh, concertos by Mozart, one in D minor, the one you're talking about, and one in C minor. And C minor and D minor become incredibly important keys in Mozart. And when a big piece is set in those keys, you know, there's a, an imminent quality that transcends any nickname or any any routine ascription. You, you just think, well, you know, the K four nine one, the C minor piano concerto, is it's it's a transcendent achievement. You can't, it cannot be bettered. Nobody would want to try and explain why, but it just comes onto itself, and you just think, well, that's the end of that. Beethoven, for instance, to some extent, modeled his C minor concerto, his third piano concerto. And one of the kind of, whether it's a fairy tale or not, one of the myths about Beethoven is that he certainly he certainly performed uh, Mozart C minor, but he remarked to a friend, we'll never be able to write like that. You know, it's that kind of um, completion. But, you know, you're, you've no sooner said that and then somebody says, yes, but what about the great majestic C major piano concerto, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what reinforces the myth, I think. Wolfgang, it almost seems vulgar to talk about money, given that we're talking about art and beauty and creativity. But money was important to Mozart. He had to make a living. And it seems to have been difficult enough to have made a living. And he seems to have been tr- crossing towards these different worlds because there was the world of the patron and then there was the... The, the world of the the concert producer as well, and that he really had to travel a lot and and try different things. Yes, and he was at a crossroads of history in a way, just by accident of uh, the time of his birth. It was a transition from the feudal order to the bourgeois nineteenth century society, and uh, usually in the previous order 
uh, if you wanted to make a good living, and that was what his father did, you found a position at a court. He became a court composer, a member of, uh, um, of uh, the orchestra or something like that. And Haydn, all his life, was happy with that. Um, but Mozart, because I think in part he had been traveling through Europe, he had conversed with crowned heads as a five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old boy. And uh, he didn't want that. And particularly, he didn't want to do that in Salzburg. His father had arranged for him to get a job there. But Salzburg wasn't really the center of the cultural world at the time. And uh, in 1781, when the prince... Uh, Bishop of Salzburg was in Vienna with his court. So Mozart was with him. He tried to get rid, uh, get out of this job and he wanted to make it in Vienna, which was a much bigger center, of course, and still is, of musical life. And he succeeded. There's the story about how, um, how he was uh, kicked out literally by someone higher up in, in, the, in the order of the archbishop. But he, he then had to make a living. He didn't have a job. And there were three ways, essentially, of doing this. You could either teach, and he tried to do that. So usually the children of aristocrats. You could Uh, arrange subscription concerts. So you would announce, unlike today, you don't buy tickets uh, on the evening or so. You would say, okay, Mozart in two weeks will play a new piano concerto in this hall. Who is willing to come and pay for this? And then people would subscribe for this. And if enough subscribed, it would take place. If they didn't, then it wouldn't. And that worked good for well, very well for a number of years. And after a while, uh, mid-80s, It didn't work that much anymore because I think he wasn't that new any, uh, anymore. And part of the reason why he then started to write more piano concertos and the last grandiose symphonies and operas again was because this thing didn't work anymore. And the third one was getting direct commissions. That's mainly for operas, sometimes for symphonies. So all the operas, you, do, you wouldn't write just sit down and write an opera just for fun and see if anyone wants it. You start doing that if an opera house approaches you and says, Next year, next March, I need an opera. This is the libretto and, and off you go. And so, but operas, that was the biggest thing and he wanted to make it in that way. That was the most prestigious thing. That came along not very often, particularly not if he weren't the court composer. Salieri was later on uh, during his stay in, in Vienna, Mozart's stay, and he would write regularly operas and was, by the way, far more successful than any movie or any other story normally wants us to believe. But Mozart had these three ways of doing it. Mozart, as Harry already alluded to, wasn't great with uh, managing his own affairs. He uh, had uh, his own servants at some stage. He had a very large uh, apartment. He had his, his own carriage at some point. He, he actually spent, he always earned a lot of money, but he also spent a lot of money. And very often he spent more money than he earned or hoped he would earn in the near future. And that's when, towards the end of his life, all those letters start that we still have because the addressees kept them, Puchberg and others' friends in their Freemason Lodge, where he actually uh, is asking for money. Can you borrow me a little bit? And because uh, I, I'm surely in two months or so, I have this coming up and then it will all be fine. But very often it wasn't. But these people usually helped him out. Um, but he was then struggling. But it was, to some extent at least, 
part of his own uh, problem of his own making because he wasn't living according to his means as they were at the time. You mentioned the Freemasons Lodge, and there is a huge amount of Freemasonry imagery in the in the uh, the Magic Flute. And I remember the, the there was an, even an Inspector Morse episode built around that Masonic mysteries, and but that contributed to the mythology then as well, and whether he was murdered for this. But why why is the the Magic Flute such a significant opera? And I suppose how how important is the Masonic imagery in it? Yes, Mozart. And as well as the librettist, um, Manu Schikaneda, whom Harry already mentioned earlier, were both Freemasons in Vienna. They had both joined a lodge there. Freemasonry then, I mean, it was as mysterious then as it is today because it's a secret society, but they were far more at the forefront of social change and advancement, whereas I think most of the time today they are looked at as being more conservative backward. Or they, they don't contribute that much anymore, at least not that we know of. Who knows? I mean, secret. But um, so, uh, and the opera, The Magic Flute, has a lot of Masonic imagery. There is lots of Egyptian uh, or pseudo-Egyptian imagery that we can see when it's staged. There's the number three that is an important number for Freemasons that is present in all sorts of threefold uh, acclamations. But also the main key is E-flat major, which has three flats, not two, not four, three. Um, but also this idea of the clash between Again, the old feudal order and the modern enlightenment order, the age of reason. And the, the clash is between the queen of the night, who represents the old order, and he, who sings in this old coloratura style that everybody knows from that famous aria, where you have endless chains of very virtuoso, very quick runs and scales, but you don't understand a word because it's about the showing off of fireworks. And on the other hand, Sarastro, the head of this quasi-Masonic order, um, who sings in a very measured uh, and easily understandable style. If you understand German, you understand every word he sings. It's about convincing people, not about ordering them around. And so Mozart uses these two spheres and uh, these two battles, the two forces battle um, over uh, Tamino, the prince, who is the character in between, who gets enlightened uh, as the opera progresses, and his sidekick Papageno, who uh, doesn't quite get there, but out of mercy is also having a happy end at the end. Anger, it's fascinating as well that when you look at the operas, you can almost chart the changes in in the public tastes uh, and, and, and in a way what they were wanting in terms of music in this period. It's fascinating. It really is to, 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 to show not only how Mozart was responding to ideas that were, were circulating at the time, you know, from Freemasonry and all of these ideals of the Enlightenment, the concept of uh, reason uh, surmounting passion, the idea that um, interiority and, and kind of a personal uh, moral identity was something that every human being possessed and it wasn't just reserved for the great and the, the wealthy. Um, we see this not only in um, operas where it's very evident, like the uh, the Magic Flute, but even in things like um, like in the the uh, ensemble pieces um, that were talked about earlier, where we have all of the different characters um, with their different perspectives, their different styles, um, and that is all coming out through the music as well. And it really seems to speak to this um, growing ideas about. Um, equality and and social uh, social opportunities um, for a broader range of people. 
But at the same time, um, as has all also already been mentioned, uh, some of Mozart's operas that we think of as being, you know, really incredible works today were not that successful uh, in his own lifetime. Um, uh, Cosi van Tutte, for example, was felt to be too complex musically to be pleasing. Um, and people had issues with, you know, some of the other operas as well, sometimes because it was felt that they were on, you know, immoral topics, uh, such as the marriage of Figaro was was not always well received for that reason. Um, and so it can be it can be challenging to try and separate out the greater claim that um, Mozart's most complex, musically complex operas have um, for a post-romantic, post-modernist audience um, versus how they were seen at the time. But at the same time, we can also trace how these important ideas and these revolutionary notions are, are feeding through in the stories and are being also communicated through the music. And in terms of the later understanding of the works, was there also a sense or was there also an issue where some works were attributed to him that he didn't do, even some very popular pieces? Oh, that was very much a problem. Um, and it's in some ways, it's always been a problem uh, for successful composers that uh, unscrupulous publishers or unscrupulous other composers will try and attribute works to a big name composer because it sells. It sells very well. Um, with Mozart, we have a, a complicated situation where for a long time throughout the 19th century and several decades into the 20th century, one of Mozart's most highly regarded works, certainly in the English-speaking world, um, in the UK, in Australia, I don't know about Ireland, I'm afraid, um, one of his most famous and, and revered works was the Twelfth Mass, which, as it turns out, he didn't write at all. You can see these amazing reviews in historical newspapers of performances of this 12th Mass where they, the reviewer will say things like, um, you can really see the master at work here or truly this is a work of genius. Um, and so there was this self-fulfilling prophecy in a way that this was a piece attributed to Mozart, therefore it must be a work of genius, therefore Mozart was a genius and it would cycle back around. And of course, it all starts falling apart um, when the early early musicologists were uh, investigating this work more closely and discovering that it's not actually uh, very closely related to Mozart's style. And it was also composed after he had died, which truly would be a great feat of genius to be still composing rather than, as it were, decomposing. Well, tonight we are debating the life, legacy and, of course, the wonderful music of Mozart. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be debating his legacy. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back and Happy New Year. It's New Year's Eve, our final show of 2023, and we're debating the life, music and legacy of Mozart with Professor Wolfgang Marx, Dr. Anghard Davis and Professor Harry White. Anghard, can I ask you a question, though, about, I suppose it's again this image of Mozart. He died at 35. If he had created, if he had written the exact same works, but over an 80 or 90 year period, would he still be as iconic? I mean, history in the subjunctive is always fascinating but very challenging to discuss. I'm inclined to think that he would have had the same kind of respect for the, the greatness of his music, but it would have been a little bit less romantically exciting to talk about um, because the myth wouldn't have been 
wouldn't have been as strong. Um, and this is an issue, uh, has historically been an issue for some other prodigies, people who start out as amazingly skilled musicians and then get less and less progressive, uh, impressive as they become older. Um, and that is not what Mozart was doing. He grew stronger and stronger as a musician until he, he passed away at such a tragically early age. I would think that even if um, he had lived to 100 and had composed these amazing piano concertos and, you know, incredible symphonies and really in some ways quite groundbreaking operas, um, that people would still love and revere the music even if the story, the mythos, the the romantic ideal of Mozart didn't quite give them that extra frisson. So, Harry, how do we assess the legacy then? Is it as someone who, you know, no matter how much time passes in centuries to come, will still be playing his music, will still be listening to these great works and that that enduring legacy is really, is really you know, says everything you need to know about how great a composer he was? Well, I think, yes, I suppose a self-evident response to that is that uh, Mozart's stakes have never been higher. There, there isn't a, a remote sense of him's music fading or being usurped by somebody else. At the top of the programme, you, you said that, you know, he's used that, that phrase I'm rather wary of, that he's the greatest composer of all time, whenever that might be. But all time uh, has only got only got started, I suppose. But I think it's fair, a fair bet that uh, insofar as... Uh, Mozart is concerned that his music will be of enduring interest. The, the reason I, I, I think that his stakes have never been higher it has to do more generally with a greater sense of refuge that uh, Western musical culture affords, even though Western musical culture is in a lot of hot water at the moment for all sorts of political and social reasons. Nevertheless, that tends to throw into sharp relief um, a composer like Mozart is a kind of go-to figure. Um, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to Mozart or to the people who listen to him, but that there's a kind of a, a refuge, a kind of reassuring quality uh, to listening to his music that, that clearly still interests millions of people and far beyond the West. I mean, Mozart's stakes have never been higher, for instance, than they are in Asia currently. He's hugely popular. And I'll take up that point you said about about the greatest composer of all time, because there is something terrible ab- about saying that. But yet, I think if I was to go outside tonight and survey 100 people who was the greatest composer of all time, maybe 90 out of 100 might say Mozart, that in the popular mind, in the popular imagination, it's Mozart and then maybe Beethoven, but he's definitely there in the at the very height of the pantheon. Well, in terms of just popular opinion and Vox Pop, maybe. Although I, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I'd lay odds in favour of uh, Beethoven, in fact, uh, because Beethoven just has that, that iconic personality as well as uh, his music. Um, but you're absolutely right. Mozart is 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 uh, a summit that everybody would recognize you know but the thing the other thing is that we're living um i mean it's arguable as to what the great art form of our day is but but film must surely be uh it and if it's not that i don't know what it would be uh and you know even mozart's afterlife in film is interesting and not not just the the uh the film version the foreman version of uh, Schaffer's astonishing play but if you think of a moment like um if you think of a film like the Shawshank Redemption, for instance, and that that mesmerizing and deeply moving moment uh, when um, 
the protagonist is in the is in the uh, warden's office and and locks the the office and then broadcasts the little duet from uh, Figaro. And Morgan Freeman says something like, I don't know what those two ladies were actually saying, but it must have been something very beautiful. Uh, there isn't, there, I can't think of anybody who would try to argue against the perfection of that music in its utterances, even if you don't understand that, ironically as it may seem, the two ladies are planning uh, to uh, prove that the Countess's husband, in fact, has been unfaithful to her. That doesn't matter. What matters is that the 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 musical rhetoric, for want of a better term, that Mozart effectuates just somehow pours a balm over the dreadful conditions in which that film was set. Wolfgang, I'm going to leave the final word for you to you tonight. The legacy of Mozart, and maybe even also if our listeners were to to listen to one piece of Mozart over the next few days, what would you recommend? Yeah, it's a new year, so it's a new beginning. But I feel, and that's per my personal interest, of course, I'm, I'm always incredibly touched by the Requiem, which is this piece that he didn't actually finish, that he died over. He finished more or less half of it, and then one of his students was asked to finish it, mainly because Constanza the widow wanted to get the second half of the commission fee that she only would get if they, if they handed over a complete piece under Mozart's name. But it's a piece that set a new standard for the Requiem. The Requiem, the Catholic Mass of the Dead, um, where it is ultimately, of course, on the one hand about... Uh, about the dead, the deceased, and uh, intercession on his behalf, but also about consolation for the bereaved. And most of the requiem compositions, the famous one for A, for example, they do that very well. And this uh, piece that has moments of high drama in the Dies era, but it also has moments of celebration of some deceased life, like in the Sanctus maybe. Uh, and it is something that shows all the aspects of Mozart's style and Mozart's uh, abilities that we have discussed. It shows interesting instrumental sections. It has great solo sections and choral pieces. It has contrapuntal abilities, so the great fugues that you find in there. And even if there are some sections where people have criticized how uh, Süßmeier, the guy who finished it, uh, actually uh, did details, and some pe people have actually proposed alternative uh, completions, I still think it is something that summarizes Mozart. Uh, the person as well as Mozart the composer in a very nice way. And how would you sum up the genius of Mozart in only, only a few final words? <laughs> um, someone who commanded incredibly competent and uh, in, in, in a way that would influence generations of composers to come all genres all styles of the music of his time in the Western European classical style. Well, I think that's a beautiful note on which to end our show tonight, our final show of the year. My thanks to everyone who has listened to Talking History over the year and we'll be looking forward to rejoining you next week and in the weeks and months ahead. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, Peter Malloy on sand, my brilliant panel of experts tonight, Professor Wolfgang Marx of UCD, Dr. Anghara Davis of the University of Sydney and the Sydney Conservatorium of Music as well as the University of New South Wales and Professor Harry White also of UCD. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night and Happy New Year. Yeah.